Did you know in the fight to save Stuyvesant Town in New York City, one middle-class community defeated the largest residential real estate deal in American history and delivered the city's biggest ever affordable housing preservation win? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about Stuyvesant Town with author and community advocate Dan Gorodnik on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore the fight to save Stuyvesant with lifetime New York City resident, community advocate, and author Dan Gorodnik. But first, a trivia question. Where is Grant's tomb? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Dan Gorodnik on the show today. Dan is the president and CEO of the Riverside Park Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization advocating for a six-mile park on Manhattan's west side. As a 12-year member of the New York City Council, Dan was known as one of New York's most independent voices and effective legislators. The City Council unanimously passed his bill that will relieve more than 2,700 small businesses in Manhattan from paying the onerous commercial rent tax. He was also the lead negotiator in crafting a plan that will deliver a nearly billion dollars to improve subways and public spaces in Midtown over the next 20 years through East Midtown and Vanderbilt Corridor rezonings. Dan is a fierce tenant advocate and in 2015 negotiated the largest affordable housing preservation deal in New York City's history. 5,000 middle-class housing units in Stuyvesant Town, Peter Cooper Village. A lawyer with a background in civil rights, he has represented same-sex couples seeking marriage equality, low-wage workers seeking a living wage, and businesses seeking fair funding for city schools as part of the campaign for fiscal equity. Dan lives with his wife and two young sons in Manhattan. When I found out about Dan's inspirational commitment to community activism and advocacy, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Dan will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Dan. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As a lifelong resident of New York City, how would you describe New York to someone who has never been there? New York is a place of immeasurable energy. It's a place where you feel like anything can happen, both good and bad, but mostly good. It has, it's like a magnet for personalities, people who want to distinguish themselves in different areas of life. And it's a place that is so diverse that you have every possible culture and language and associated food and religion that it feels like you're, you know, if you go to a different neighborhood um, on any given day, it's like you could be going to an entirely different country. Uh, and I think that that is a wonderful, wonderful experience. It is. What do you love most about New York? 
What I love most about New York is the pace and the ambition of it. It feels like everybody is striving to do better or to do more. And I think that what you see in an environment like that is gives real life to the place and it brings a, an energy which is uh, kind of incomparable. That's my favorite. The last time I was in New York, I visited the New York Public Library and um, it was a fantastic site. I enjoyed it very much. So what is one tourist site that you believe people shouldn't miss when they visit New York? There's so many tourist sites to choose from that are cannot miss sites, but I would have to say Ellis Island would be pretty high on the list uh, because not only is it an important a place for New York's history, but it's also an important place for American history where so many people from around the world came to find new opportunity with lots of anxiety and and risk to themselves and to their families and to be in the place where where people uh, saw their first introduction to the United States, I think is uh, is pretty extraordinary and is it's an important, pretty important site. As the wife of an immigrant and the daughter of an immigrant, I would certainly agree to that. I enjoyed Ellis Island immensely and I did not have enough time to see everything that was there. It would take several days to be able to really get a good sense of the wonder and history that that is there. Stuyvesant Town, Peter Cooper Village, is the largest residential apartment complex in the United States. Tell us about its history. Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village were built in the 1940s, and they were built as a way to deal with a serious housing crisis that New York City was facing at the time. And they were designed to be a way to accommodate veterans returning home from World War II. It was built by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in partnership with New York City and New York State. There was a deal that was struck that allowed MetLife to, to build on land that needed to be condemned by the city and displace 11,000 people who lived there, mostly poor immigrants who lived there at the time. It gave MetLife a guaranteed rate of return on their investment and a 25-year tax abatement. And in exchange, MetLife agreed to keep rents low on the new residents. It was for many years a place which... Uh, allowed New Yorkers to be, you know, to have a, sa a stable and safe place to live and where MetLife as the landlord was mostly viewed pretty benevolently as if they would look after residents and they would find a way to keep people in the neighborhood who were struggling or take care of them if they, if a family was facing a divorce, find ways to keep them in the neighborhood. There was all sorts of things that MetLife did to, to help look after the residents there. And it was mostly a middle-class community and unique in New York City. Uh, and that's how it was for many, many years uh, until, uh, you know, the end of the end of the millennium, things started to change a little bit. And you were raised in that that neighborhood, what made it special for you? To me, living in Stuyvesant Town, Peter Cooper, was like living in a, a small town right in the middle of a big city. It had ample green spaces, playgrounds, with a feeling that as a kid, you were pretty safe and walking around when you were within the confines of the neighborhood. And, you know, in our building where I grew up, you sort of had a cross-section of the middle class of New York City. You had teachers, 
firefighters. I had a furrier who lived next door who did his manufacturing in the garment district, a retired police officer who was my Spanish tutor, and, you know, and everywhere in between. And so it had a, a very small town feel to it, which allowed us to really get to know our neighbors and look after one another, much like you would expect in a, uh, in a, in a, a much more uh, limited size of town or city. And your book, Saving Stuyvesant Town, is a modern day David and Goliath story. It details the incredible true story of how tenant activists in the middle class community defeated the largest residential real estate deal in American history. Can you tell us about the fight to save Stuyvesant Town? Yes. And I know our time is limited, so I will try to give you the, just the top of the trees and encourage people uh, to read the book because I think it's a really interesting and challenging dynamic that the tenants were facing over many years. But what happened at the turn of the millennium was that MetLife started to see an opportunity to bring in more money from their various real estate assets. And in 2006, they decided that they were going to sell Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper at the height of the real estate market. And they pitched it to investors, potential buyers, as an opportunity to shake loose this sleepy middle-class neighborhood and create an extraordinary luxury product in its place. And to say that the real estate world went simply crazy for this auction would be an understatement. The, the auction that MetLife started, it ended up bringing in prices that were billions of dollars more than what had been anticipated only months earlier. And they ended up selling the property to Tishman Spire and BlackRock for $5.4 billion. One of the interesting points there was that the tenants themselves, uh, with my support, uh, tried to buy the property for the tenants. So we actually put in a bid in MetLife's auction uh, to try to become the owners of the neighborhood ourselves. We came in at $4.5 billion, which while it was $900 million short, also surprised a lot of people that the tenants and their new city councilman, that was me, who I'd been elected less than a year earlier, were able to do such a thing. Fast forward a few years, Tishman Spire and BlackRock had an entire business plan that could only pencil out if they were to get tenants out of their apartments, people who were paying lower rents, get them out of their apartments and replace them with people who were paying higher rents. And there were various protections that existed for people and loopholes that had existed that allowed an owner to try to manipulate the system in that way. And they tried to do that. We fought back with every ounce of might that we could find. And we were able to push back pretty well against this new business plan. And ultimately, Tishman Spire uh, and BlackRock defaulted, giving us an opportunity again to try to become the owners of the property or to bring a new stability to this community. And at the end of the day, we were able to strike what was the largest affordable housing preservation deal in all of New York City's history. And that was in 2015. And the twists and turns and a negotiation that played out both in public and private that involved politics and real estate and organizing is really the, that is really what the book Saving Stuyvesant Town is all about. And what's one question about your book that you wish someone would ask that no one has asked yet? I think one of the toughest questions for me is how did you keep 30,000 residents of this community united in the efforts to, to do 
what you did there? And the 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 answer to that question is it's complicated uh, in that it required a lot of effort. It required a lot of time educating people about what we were trying to do, a lot of diffusing the, the notion that anybody who was organizing toward anything, that they were doing it for questionable or even malicious purposes. It's a lot of skepticism out there about people in public life. And to find ways for people in the neighborhood who had real expertise on questions of real estate finance to bring them into the process and to help them uh, have ownership of our plan and to give them a chance uh, to work directly with the Tenants Association and me uh, to be able to influence the the end result. And it was one of the great challenges of this story, which was we were trying very hard to keep 30,000 people happy, roughly uh, pulling the boat in the same direction, while also presenting ourselves to the real estate world that was swirling around and trying to strike a deal with somebody that we were a viable counterparty, somebody that they could work with. They didn't need to talk to 30,000 people individually, but they could talk to us and that we could actually deliver the results. So walking that line was one of the biggest challenges that we faced. And I think it's an important part of the story. And you are currently the president and CEO of the Riverside Park Conservancy. What drew you to that position? Well, this is a role that, you know, it's a not-for-profit organization that supports six miles of parkland on the Hudson River. And to me, the ability to continue doing public service after my term in the city council ended, I was term limited. After that came to a close, I was thinking about how I might continue to serve New York. And this opportunity to be the chief executive of an organization that is doing lots of good to help protect a very valued public space that's a historic landmark in New York City and that millions of people use every year, I thought, well, that's a little different and something that I'd like to try. And so that was what drew me to it. And uh, it certainly is a, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to support and improve a, a very beloved uh, public space. What do you think makes the park so beloved? Well, I, you know, what's interesting about it is this particular park, it's not right in the middle. So it's not like Central Park in that it's the primary tourist attraction for people coming from out of town. I think for a lot of New Yorkers, it is truly their backyard. It's really their space. They feel like it's their space. And even though millions of people who do not live right next to the park are obviously in there and enjoying it you know, every year, to the people who live in the neighborhood, it is theirs. They feel a great deal of protectiveness toward it and ownership of it. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful park right along the Hudson River with a lot of needs, but people are in there with their dogs and running and doing sports. And, you know, it, it is a, it's, you see a great cross-section of New Yorkers. And I think people really appreciate the opportunity to be out there. And I will note that during COVID in particular, we saw an even deeper appreciation of uh, this public space and certainly other public spaces in, in New York City, because I think people, even if they hadn't taken them for granted before, now really relied on them because it was the place for them to get out, continue to be socially distanced and take a, get a breath of fresh air and not worry about it in the midst of a, you know, this, this crisis. So um, we saw a lot of support uh, for our organization and the park, uh, even throughout uh, 
the pandemic. And what do you enjoy most about your current position? I love being in a in a place where I can fundraise to fix a specific problem, find the people to fix it, execute it, be done with it, and report back that the whole project is finished in a way that I never could have done in the context of government. So the speed of it, the effectiveness of it, to me, is very satisfying. And then, of course, you walk around the park when it's all done and you can, you know, you can see the impact of your efforts with your own eyes. It's nothing ambiguous about it. You can look at a staircase and say, oh, I remember the conversation which led to that broken staircase getting fixed or that area getting repaved or that gardener being hired. And that was as a direct result of my efforts. And that to me is uh, is very, very satisfying. And you can enjoy the park every day at lunch. Right, exactly. Another benefit, right? Anytime I'm in the park, well, I'm in the office. So, you know, you can't possibly argue with that. It's the best. So I'm curious, whenever I buy a hot pretzel and I'm not in New York City, it never tastes as good as the ones that I buy from a vendor on the street in the city. Why is it that only pretzels in New York taste that good? Well, it's a, there's, a, there's a real secret there, what I probably am not able to disclose. No, I, yeah, the true answer is, you know, there's a specific type of New York pretzel, right? It's like, it's a mix between soft and crunchy and it's partially salty, but partially not. And it's a, it's truly a, a classic, but I would argue that there are some other things that are like that in New York, which you don't really get in other places like bagels, uh, which have a, you know, similar characteristic, like, wow, why is it? Why is it? Some people say it's the water. Some people say it's our attitude. I don't know what it is exactly, but it certainly is something which, which makes uh, the city a very special place. And slices of pizza are never the same either. Despite the fact being called a New York slice or a New York pizza, it never tastes like it does in New York City. Right. That's right. It, it couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Well, I'm, I'm very, very pleased to have written a book that tells a story of a public-private partnership. A lot of what I have done over time has been about marshalling private resources and support of public goals. Stuyvesant Town and our effort there and you know the story of saving Stuyvesant Town that I wrote the book about uh, is one of those. I did a lot of work in trying to change the, the dynamic for growth in midtown Manhattan to allow for the expansion and growth of our commercial office district. And now, of course, I'm you know, in a, another real public-private partnership where I'm the private side working to improve this public space and finding it to be very successful in the efforts that we are undertaking. So to me, you know, the work that I have done, it really relates to finding the right mix between private support of public initiatives uh, and getting and getting the job done. So I hope uh, I hope that that is uh, that is clear in uh, in the book and beyond. But that's certainly been a driving force for me. And where can listeners find out more about you? The most easy way is at dangorodnik.com. That's last name is Gorodnik, G-A-R-O-D-N-I-C-K. And uh, there's also all, all the contact information there if people want to reach me. But also a... Uh, a good old-fashioned Google search would probably uh, reveal all sorts of fun background insights and things that I've been involved in over time. E- either way would be a good way to, to learn a little bit more. That's fantastic. It was great to have you on the show, Dan. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. Where is Grant's tomb? New York City landmark and national monument, Grant's tomb, the final resting place of Ulysses S. Grant, 18th President of the United States, 
is located in Riverside Park, the scenic waterfront park along the Hudson River. We'll end the show with something punny. Why are New Yorkers so depressed? Because the light at the end of the tunnel is New Jersey. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.